Stanford University. I'm, um, first I'd like to welcome you to the spring Coverly Lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek. I'm the Dean of the School of Education and I am just thrilled to see you all here uh, joining us today. We are absolutely delighted to have Diane Ravage with us tonight. She is a very well-known, as you can see by the crowd here, um, thinker and leader in the field of education. She has always had the courage to say what she believes, popular or not. And she has shown us recently that she has even the greater courage to say when the data suggests or the new information suggests that she may want to change her beliefs. Um, we're pleased tonight to have another prominent voice in education, Linda, our own Linda Darling-Hammond. Um, Linda has, uh, is going to help focus the discussion th this evening, and, and she's also going to introduce Diane, who obviously deserves a, a much more detailed introduction. Um, I was going to introduce Linda, but she's home. She's a well-known uh, person here, and, uh, and I also looked at the long list of ac accomplishments and her leadership in the field of education, and I thought we would be here all night if I even pulled out the very most important ones. So I decided instead that I'm just going to share one little story. It's a quote, actually. Um, of hers that I think gets to the heart of Linda's passion and her life's work. When Linda was interviewed by the Nightly Business Report and by PBS for their documentary series, Only a Teacher, she pointed out that cosmetologists are required to have more on-the-job training than most teachers in America. She commented, we're much more willing to take chances with the lives of our children than we are with the condition of our hair in this country. It makes us laugh, but it also is, is uh, a very real and very uh, powerful statement, and Linda knows how to bring reality um, into focus. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Linda Darling-Hammond and Diane Ravage. You guys look great. Wish we could get folks to turn out for class uh, at this level. <laughs> you, know, you know I'm kidding because all of, all of those of you who are here from the Stanford student body are um, avid, uh, avidly engaged in developing your own knowledge and skills and it's great to see so many people from the community. Diane Ravitch, it's such a pleasure for me to be able to introduce Diane, we have known each other for 20 years, at least, maybe more. I'm not sure how many we want to admit to. Uh, when we were both at Teachers College, she has been, throughout all of those years, one of the most deeply knowledgeable historians of education, uh, respected for the uh, knowledge she has and the uh, eloquence with which she states uh, her views and uh, helps people think about public education in this country. She is, in my view, the definition of a public intellectual. Someone who really uh, thinks deeply about our public life and who helps us think deeply about what we should do uh, to engage in developing 
a strong democracy, a strong public education system. Diane is a native of Houston, Texas. She's a product. <laughs> Houston, Houston is in the house. That's great. Uh, a product of the local public schools. She attended Wellesley uh, with other remark. Wellesley is in the house. All right, this is a crowd, Diane. They're going to be so ready. She was there, uh, went to Wellesley where other remarkable women like Madeleine Albright and Nora Ephron also uh, received degrees. She received her PhD in history from Columbia University. She has honorary, Columbia's in the house, all right. Uh, she has honorary degrees from eight universities. She's currently a research professor of education at New York University. <laughs> New York University in the house. Uh, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a board member of Common Core, and a member of academies that are too numerous to name. She's received awards for her contributions to the field from Wellesley, from the Uni United Federation of Teachers, the American Philosophical Society, the New York Academy of Public Education, the New York Public Library. You can see by the breadth and uh, eclecticism of that list how widely Diane's accomplishments are recognized in different corners of our, um, of our world. She previously served as the Assistant Secretary of Education for Research and Improvement in the first Bush administration, was later appointed by Dick Riley as a member of the National Assessment Governing Board during the Clinton administration. Um, in spite of her Washington credentials, she's really not so much the political type. Uh, she is deeply knowledgeable, though, about and committed to good policy. She is not afraid of controversy. Diane was once a passionate advocate for accountability and choice. Now she subjects these movements to critical analysis. Uh, and we'll hear some of that analysis uh, this afternoon. Her new book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education, uh, is uh, in many ways quite a masterpiece. Uh, Diane and I were writing our most recent books at the same time. Uh, the Flat World in Education is the one I was working on. Uh, the Death and Life uh, was Diane's book. We were swapping chapters uh, and sending each other ideas and uh, feedback and commentary and uh, references and so on. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience in seeing how a great mind evolves great thoughts. Uh, Diane writes that the educational ideas that she once championed have been hijacked by proponents of high-stakes testing and the school choice movement. She describes her own favorite teacher, her senior year English teacher, Mrs. Ratliff, who did absolutely nothing for her self-esteem or her performance on standardized tests, but instead taught Diane and her other students how to think critically and how to revere the English language. I bemoan to Diane in our many emails how uh, pithy and eloquent she is in her writing. It is just a joy to read and something that I aspire to. Many of you have followed Bridging Differences, the blog Diane shares with her friend and philosophical opponent, Deborah Meyer, on Education Week, although I think opponent is probably too strong a word. It is a uh, philosophical uh, engagement that is uh, very fluid and wonderful to read. It was recently recognized by the Washington Post as one of the best education blogs. Uh, and when she isn't busy creating a stir in the education debate, you can find her on the beach in Long Island. Please join me in welcoming a great American, a great defender of public education, Diane Ravitch.
well, you just got started. And <laughs> I'm sure people want to hear much more. I get the prerogative of asking a few of the first questions, and I think folks will be able in a few minutes to line up at the microphones to ask more. So um, this idea that school reform should be constructive and not punitive uh, would make you, in the eyes of some, an apologist for the status quo. How do you answer them? Well, what I'm suggesting is we need to change the status quo. I'm suggesting we need to begin to think about a, a 10, 12, or 15-year plan where we raise the quality of, of teaching, we, where we make it very, uh, you know, a very honored profession because the people coming into it got through a rigorous process. They're well, very well educated. As you said, it's harder to become a cosmetologist than a teacher. So it sort of fits in with what you're saying. I think that we should raise the standards across the board for entry into the profession. Uh, and we have to change assessments to get away from this bubble mentality, all the things I was talking about. So I think that there are many things we have to do if we started thinking about how could you really improve education. We need to strengthen discipline in the schools. I mean, when teachers tell you stories about you know, lack of safety in the schools, we shouldn't accept that. I mean, the one thing we can learn from good charter schools is they don't tolerate misbehavior. I, they throw the kids back into public school. I don't know where, where they're going to throw them from public school. But we really do have to address the need to establish a disciplined environment where, where children and teachers have the opportunity to teach and learn. So I'm not satisfied with the status quo. And uh, I've been criticizing American education for about 40 years. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not stopping. So you might say that's real reform. <laughs> right. Um, in your new book, you say that schools and teachers are being punished uh, for failing to reach impossible standards. So schools are gaming the test in order to boost their test scores. Um, what had you hoped would happen with NCLB, and what do you hope will happen now? Well, what I would uh, recommend if I were to have five minutes with the president would be, um, first of all, I would remove all the sanctions from uh, NCLB. They're going to change the name. They'll call it something else. I would remove all the sanctions so that I think there will continue to be testing, but I think the test should be used for informational and diagnostic purposes. That way we can track progress. But by putting the stakes on and having the, the punishments and the incentives, we give people encouragement, first, to narrow the curriculum, second, to teach to the test, and third, to, to cheat. And gaming the system is cheating. And states have been cheating. Districts have been cheating. Principals have been cheating. Teachers, everybody is encouraged to cheat because the stakes are so high. Take away the stakes, and let's find out where we are and then have a commitment to, you know, we have to educate our kids. We have to get serious. The other thing I would tell the president, is, and this is really important, to me it's a critical thing, is fully fund special education. I mean, <laughs> the federal government passed laws mandating special education services, and it pays for about 12%. And I think that if you mandate something, you should pay for it. If you don't want to pay for it, don't mandate it. But if they're going, they have to pay for that. That would immediately relieve every district in this country of an enormous fiscal burden. Well, and, and if we could also get people really well prepared to teach kids who have special educational needs, we would actually be doing something for right. those kids that IEPs are not doing for them today. Um, over the years, we have d discussed and debated ideas. We have sometimes agreed, sometimes disagreed, sometimes changed each other's minds. Um, would you describe uh, your vision as it's uh, in the book today as more of an evolution of your thinking or an intellectual U-turn? Well, I, I don't think it's an intellectual U-turn because I've always had one sort of consistent goal as, some, as someone in this field. And that was, I always had this vision that um, it was 
kind of in line, uh, the one thing I've loved about Dewey was this one line where he said that was, what the best and wisest parent wants for their child is what we should want for all the children of the community. What I would want for every child is that they would go to a school that would be a school where they could learn history and civics and geography and, and foreign languages and the arts and, uh, you know, all the stuff that I would want for my children, I would want for everyone else's children. And I see what's happening now and I think that's not it. So I suppose... I supported accountability and choice, thinking these were strategies that might move us closer to that goal. And as the evidence accumulated, I felt that this is not something I would want for my now grown children, but certainly not for my grandchildren. I felt that it, this was cruel to, to them. I wouldn't want them to be in a school that would have this focus because it's not good education. I have a three-year-old. I have teenage grandchildren and a three-year-old, and I look at the three-year-old and think, oh, God, I don't want him. I don't want this to happen to him. Yeah. So you talked a little about how choice could be used in some contexts for purposes that would build the kind of system you're um, helping us imagine. Uh, are there ways in which accountability should be used? Is there a vision of accountability that uh, is a productive, constructive vision? Well, there, there may be um, other people who've thought about this more than I have and thought more deeply about it, but. I hear the word accountability today, and I immediately understand the context to mean punish. And I have many times, as, and when people say, uh, what are, how are we going to hold teachers accountable? And I say, you mean how are we going to punish teachers? And they say, yeah, that's what I mean. And I just don't think punishment, I mean, we've sort of been like 100 years away from the day when we sent kids into the corner with a dunce cap. But... Now this attitude toward teachers, and, and I hear this from people, teachers all over the country is, I just wish someone would say thank you because you don't know what I'm putting up with every single day. You don't know the problems I encounter with the kids coming with major family issues and, and uh, you know, they got beaten, they got thrown out of the house last night. They come to me with all these problems and then I'm gonna be held accountable because their scores didn't go up every single year. And um, I think, I, I just would like to see the language of education become the language of education rather than the language of punishment. And the language of education, as educators, we're, we believe in the redemption of people and the, possibility, the possibilities of humans to improve. That's kind of why you go into education, is you want to help people grow and develop and evolve. And, and somehow the language seems to be taken from penal institutions rather than education. So I want us to use education language and get it back into federal law. You know, when B.F. Skinner was uh, doing all the stuff with positive and negative reinforcements, uh, somewhere around 1945, I think, he wrote that punishment doesn't work. Uh, and uh, it took him a long time to figure that out, though, because I think he raised his kids in a Skinner box or something like that. Well, so it may, yeah. may, take, may take us a little while to, to learn that lesson. Um, how would you, uh, given that you know, firing bad teachers doesn't by itself get us to nirvana, how would you attract and keep good teachers? Well, let me say that I'm not in favor of keeping bad teachers, but you know, you first of all have to say somebody hires them, somebody uh, supposedly goes and visits their classrooms and then says, all right, you know, you're good enough. Uh, somebody is giving, probably giving them tenure because they're at will up until they get the time they get tenure. And people forget tenure doesn't mean what it does in higher education. It just means the right to due process, the right to a hearing with, when you're, instead of being an at-will employee. Uh, and so I would say that um, maybe we should be firing administrators. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, How about it, a 
It's their, it's their failure to evaluate the teachers that allows bad teachers to persist. And there are bad teachers, and we should get rid of them, but they, they should be gotten rid of before they ever reach the point where they have any job protections. And how would we build a supply of good teachers and good administrators who you know, know what they're doing and can? Well, I'd say that the first thing in building a supply is to uh, restore the sense of honor, respect, and esteem attached to teaching. Uh, and, and by encouraging the idea that things you've written about in other countries where becoming a teacher is really a very honored thing in society in places like Finland and Japan and other countries, uh, and that it's something that, um, that the society is grateful for, and have people understand when they go into teaching that um, they're not going to become objects of scorn, which seems to be the situation in many places today. We're not going to have the President of the United States standing up and say, hooray, they fired every member of the staff without evaluating any one of them. Uh, we have to change the dialogue, we have to change the language, uh, and, and we really have to, I think, get across, and this question has come up when I've talked to student groups, and they say, you know, I'm studying to be a teacher, and uh, it sounds like a scary time to go into teaching. And so, you know, all I can say to them is, you're going to go into the classroom at some point when you've finished your preparatory work. Hopefully you'll have mentors to help you so that you're not just thrown to the wolves or thrown into the toughest classrooms where they want cannon fodder. But when you're there, you're going to look out, and there are going to be a sea of young faces. And as one of the teachers pointed out, it's a very large sea these days. Mm. 52 <laughs> but, per classroom in some parts of Los Angeles. Oh. Well, what, however many children, they're looking to you. Their eyes are on you. And you have the chance to really, really affect their lives. And if it's not too overwhelming, for some of them, you're going to be, make a difference in their life. And if you stay long enough, in time, you'll go to the you know, the service station or you go to the grocery store and someone will come up to you and say, do you remember me? You changed my life. You made a difference in my life. I've always thought of you. Just the way I wrote a chapter about Mrs. Ratliff, there'll be somebody who will say, you changed my life. That's the psychic income of yeah. teaching. And that's why people keep going in despite all this negativity being thrown their way. Uh, but that to me is uh, what makes teaching different from anything else I can think of. That chance to have so many young people, in some cases thousands of young people, who think of you and think, you made a difference in my life. And it's that making teachers have the conditions in which they can be efficacious, that is the biggest draw to retaining right. them. Having, As they'll say over and over conditions. again, it's not merit pay bonuses, it's knowing that I can do a better job and be in the context where that will work right. for me. And I know that there was a survey in California where teachers said that the biggest drawback to teaching was the, the working conditions. Yeah. And what they wanted more than money was decent working conditions. And on the subject of merit pay, uh, I was recently reading um, Edward Dimming, who is the kind of the guru of quality control in business. And I had just been thinking of the business model as ruthless competition and incentives and sanctions and things like that. But Dimming said, if you hire good people and you then expect them and trust them to do a good job, the worst thing you can do is give bonuses to different people for doing the same job. It destroys the morale of the organization. I'm going to invite people who want to come up to the microphones to be ready to ask some questions because I want to be sure everybody gets a chance here. I, I have another 35 I could ask, but <laughs> I'll have more time to ask later. So why don't we start over here uh, at this mic right here and see how many Hi, we can get in. Hi, I'm Jeannie Etchini. Try to keep them short and pithy. Yes, from Salinas, California. And as we speak, the state board is interviewing teachers 
uh, the school district, the school board, because we were just taken over by the state because we were our failing school district. Two of our 10 schools are the, on the list of the lowest schools, and we're expecting all those teachers to get laid off, and we expect they're gonna come to our schools, and some of us are gonna be put in those two schools. We don't know. But even as we speak, the nightmare is happening. Um, one other quick item. Rice University recently sent out a flyer to all the teachers in Houston at the public schools, inviting them to go and get their master's. A good time now, the recession's kind of slow, lots of layoffs, and don't get a master's in education, get it in the master's of business, is what they were told to do on this flyer and invited to do, because that's the way of the future as they see it for education. Um, and one of the things I read- Do you I have a question? Here's the question. Diane, recently I read something where it, it, um, the dean of the Berkeley School of Law said that perhaps um, this was after the 15th when Obama made his recent um, addition to Race to the Top or what it was, whatever it was called, and he was saying that perhaps the civil rights of the families and students are being violated by this new. Have you heard of anything where there's anybody pursuing that avenue that these educational programs are violating, and I'm very emotional about this. As a fifth grade teacher, I teach these, I teach migrants, students of the Salinas Valley lettuce fields. And we're all, you know, we're all getting thrown out, like dish, dirty dishwater. Have you heard of anything in terms of civil rights being approached as an approach to attack this? Because I think that is a possibility. Um, first of all, thank you for what you do. I, I, I think that what we have today is a, something that calls itself in a school reform movement that is really a chaos-creating movement. We're going to see thousands of schools closing. We're going to see thousands, tens of thousands of teachers laid off. Uh, I mean, if there were 5,000 schools closed. We need 5,000 principals coming out of nowhere. We need hundreds of thousands of teachers coming out of nowhere. Or we just move everybody around from one low-performing school to another and call it reform. This is the most destructive approach to school reform I can imagine. It's not school reform. Alinda, do you have any thoughts about the question that she's asked? I haven't heard this theory, uh, and I assume that the notion is uh, that Kids' civil rights are violated when their kids are when their schools are closed. Is that what you're saying? I do know that there are a number of civil rights leaders who are very, very concerned about the school closing strategy because schools are the heartbeats of the community, and because um, the experience in, with school closings has been that typically the schools that replace them are no higher scoring than the schools that were disassembled. And, and before you go on, let me just say, you could, we have, a, have to have some other people ask questions, but in Chicago, there have been lots of school closings. Arnie Duncan is doing to the nation what he did in Chicago, which is closing schools, opening schools, closing schools, opening schools, and the evaluations that were done there said that about half the kids in the closed schools went to other low-performing schools. The other half got into somewhat better schools. Overall, there was no improvement in performance. It's really not a successful strategy, but what, what happened also was that kids then are crossing from one community to another, and there's been a rise in youth violence as they cross into a different community where nobody knows them. It's really a destructive approach. 
I mean, this is something where if it's broke, fix it. Don't, don't destroy it. Don't kill it. Let's try over this side. Thank you. Um, my name is Peter. I'm a student in the teacher education program here at Stanford. And, uh, and as an education student, I grew up reading the articles that the two of you wrote. And uh, when Obama was elected that, and Linda Darling Hammond, you were on his team, I assumed that meant you'd have his ear. But now it's really a little disheartening to hear that the things that the two of you are talking about seem not to be in the reauthorization. So my question is, who does have his ear, and why are their arguments being listened to and those that you are making not? Thank you. Well, so, my, my guess, I'm, I, of course, I'm not as wired into what's happening as Linda is, but my guess is that uh, the Gates Foundation is having a big, uh, I know, the Gates Foundation, because he's hired many people from the Gates Foundation to work there. The Innovation Fund, the I3 Fund, uh, has about $700 million, and there's a former Gates Foundation executive. Uh, the, the race of the top fund, $4.3 billion, is being run by the former CEO of the New Schools Venture Fund. The New Schools Venture Fund is a charter-creating organization, uh, and it's funded by Gates, Broad, and the, the other big foundations. So I can't explain why. I can just tell you this is where the leadership is coming from. Do you have anything to add? Well, I would just say that while there are a lot of things that we, uh, that Diane and I are uh, writing and talking about in our uh, books and elsewhere that are very similar around having a constructive approach to school reform and, uh, and building public education, uh, my book is a little less uh, pessimistic than Diane's in a couple of ways. I do think there are a few things happening, uh, but there's a huge amount of arm wrestling going on federally. But there are a few things happening that may be very productive in the long run. One is the attempt um, by the uh, Obama administration to talk about building new assessments. Um, Diane has been a longtime advocate for uh, sort of common standards. Uh, that we think about what that means. Uh, there is some effort to try to think about how we could have more uh, thoughtful uh, standards for students and have those reflected in better assessments. So I think these ideas are all contended in the public space. Uh, and some good ideas are being promoted, and some ideas that are less likely to be successful are also being promoted. And uh, I fear, as Diane does, for um, the outcomes of some of the approaches that seem aimed more at destruction than construction. Um, but I think there are some also some uh, potential positive things that are being uh, put forward as well. And the important thing is that people contend in the public space, which is why having voices like Diane's in that space and, and many others is really important. But, but note that while we have these assessments that Secretary Duncan says are terrible assessments, teachers will be judged by them. We're, they're not waiting for better assessments to come along. Over on this side. Hi, my name is Daniel Stringer. I'm at the School of Education as well. Um, and I'll... Hey, Daniel. <laughs> I'll just take 10 seconds to give a shout out to Miss Enright, who teaches civics in uh, ninth grade and 10th grade in Greensboro, North Carolina. <laughs> All right. And, and kind of touching on that, I think um, being in the School of Education and, and talking about education in general, 
we sometimes lose the fact that there are amazing schools in America, and there are schools that are teaching students extremely well, and students who are learning amazing things. Um, but there are also schools that you know, are not teaching students as well, and students who are doing, not doing as well. And I guess my question is kind of about educational inequality um, and the extent to which um, kind of this perpetual inequality endangers students who may not be getting as good an education. So my, my question is, to what extent do you think that some students' race to the, the proverbial top is endangering the ability for all students to get an adequate education? Well, I fundamentally object the metaphor of a race to the top. It's, it's somehow alien to the basic principle of equal educational opportunity. We, want, we would really like everyone to race to the top. I mean, race suggests somebody's going to get there. You know, I don't know why it was Delaware and Tennessee. They still have billions left over, and they'll pick a few more. Uh, but given the, the specific criteria that they expect the states to do, I believe won't improve education. They will not equalize education. They will not help the lowest performing students. Uh, focusing more on closing schools, on uh, testing, to, you know, Florida just passed a law this past week that said that teachers uh, will be judged by their student test scores, by gains in student test scores. And when uh, people said, hey, you're only going to test reading and math, they said, don't worry about it. We'll test everything. They said, but we don't have the test to test everything. They said, don't worry about it. We'll cut every district's budget by 5% to develop a test for everything. I mean, the kids in Florida are going to be doing nothing but taking tests. They won't have time for instruction. Does anyone think this will improve education? I don't. Uh, let me just add to the point you make, Daniel, that inequality is the thing that we haven't been talking about for the last 20 years in real serious terms, in terms of the inequalities in funding and resourcing that goes on. So uh, in the United States, uh, the top spending districts spend 10 times more than the bottom spending districts. And in any given state, it's a three to one ratio. And the kids who are the uh, least advantaged have also the least spent on their education. And uh, that actually drives the desire, the lack of attention to equity for uh, a variety of other reforms and options. But what's not on the table right now is the most important uh, fundamental piece, which is resourcing all schools equitably, making sure all schools have access to well-qualified teachers and leaders uh, and, and ensuring that the resources are there um, in the first place. In 1988, when inequality began to grow, uh, the achievement gap began to grow again. Our achieve we, we had a lower achievement gap. We had more equity um, in the 70s and early 80s than we have today in this country. Well, if I can add, Daniel, just one other point, which is that through generations or decades and decades of social science research, the most reliable predictor of test scores is family income. And so if you were to do one thing that would reduce the achievement gap and improve achievement, it might be to uh, it would be to reduce the inequality gap and to reduce poverty. That would make a big difference. You tend to children's health and, and the needs of families, and make sure that people have a chance at having a, a decent job and a decent wage. Now that's really hard, and I don't have the answers to all that, but I do know that um, there are people out there who call themselves reformers who say poverty is an excuse. Of course, they're not poor, so for them it's not an excuse. <laughs> We have time for one more question. I'm sorry, just one more. You talked about accountability and choice. Do you think the problem is with the philosophy of accountability and choice, or is it the way we've implemented it? 
Well, I think there's a problem with high-stakes testing. I think that when you attach uh, sanctions and incentives to test scores, people focus on them more than they should, and they change their behavior. And it's expected that they will change their behavior. You want them to change their behavior, but you get more changes than you want. So people, uh, many will say, well, you know, we're really not narrowing the curriculum. There's no evidence that the curriculum is narrowed. But if you believe in incentives, in incentives then you know that there's more time and attention on reading and math because that's all that counts. So if there's more time and attention on reading and math, there has to be less time for everything else. So I don't think it's the way it's implemented. I just think that high stakes, uh, the rewards and the punishments drives human behavior in a way that doesn't improve education. As for choice, I can see choice becoming uh, something that would help education if all the high stakes were off, because then maybe then the charter schools would say, we're in business to focus on dropouts and bring them back into uh, education. But you can't say to them if you're, you can't then apply the high stakes and expect them to focus on the lowest performing kids. Let me give you a chance to say some last words of wisdom to the School of Education students and others in the audience. Well, I guess the last word of wisdom I have is that uh, there are very few activities you can engage in than helping young people become better educated, wiser, uh, think more about their lives and what they're going to do with them. And I think it's very challenging in these days, not only because of all the things we've discussed here, but because we li live in a culture of distraction. And young people find it harder and harder to focus on schoolwork and to pay attention to what the teacher tells them to do. Uh, and it's, it's really hard to educate. And this is the thing that I think has been so missing from the discussion in the past few years, the past eight years, really, that education is a long-term job, that it's not easy, that there are no quick solutions, uh, and that it requires dedicated people who are teaching and willing students and enough resources for people to do the job that's expected of them and it's, uh, we're not going to find any easy answers. So I encourage you, if you're studying to be a teacher, do it uh, and demand a lot of yourself and demand a lot of your students. Thank you. And thank a teacher. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.